The International Association for Near-Death Studies presents NDE Radio, a weekly exploration of near-death experiences and similar encounters with the other side. Now, here's your host, Lee Whitting. For those who believe in the near-death experience, nothing is more moving than visions describing the landscape and light of the other side. But for those who doubt, Nothing is more convincing than OBEs and NDEs offering veridical evidence that these visions are verifiably true. Welcome to NDE Radio, brought to you by IANS, the International Association for Near-Death Studies. I'm your host, Lee Whitting. I've just returned from IANS' excellent conference in Orlando with a suitcase full of books, but perhaps none so important as this, the IANS translation into English of the Dutch book, The Self Does Not Die. Authors Titus Rivas, Annie Durvin, and Rudolf Schmidt have collected NDE stories demonstrating the near-death and out-of-body experience can provide verifiable evidence that the experience is not a dream, hallucination, or drug reaction, but a conscious experience of the consciousness departing the body and observing reality from the soul state of our being. Through funding by IANS and the hard work of Robert and Suzanne Mays in putting together the English edition, we now have a collection of more than a 100 stories with real evidence of the reality of the NDE experience. So for our show today, I'm going to read you a few of these stories from The Self Does Not Die, and I hope you'll find them intriguing enough to order a copy for yourself. The stories range from the following uh, list of um, contents extrasensory veridical perception of the immediate environment. That's people seeing things when they get out of their bodies. Uh, extrasensory veridical perception of events beyond the reach of the physical senses. Awareness and extraordinary veridical perception during cardiac arrest and other conditions seemingly incompatible with consciousness. Telepathy. After-death communication with strangers and with familiar people. Observations of out-of-body NDEs by others, miraculous healings, paranormal abilities after NDEs. All of these are uh, are presented with um, actual concrete evidence to demonstrate the reality of these uh, stories. So let me begin with a little story titled uh, Naomi. A patient of critical care physician Lauren Belch, uh, whom she calls Naomi in her recent book, Near Death in the ICU, had a cardiac arrest resulting from a heart attack. The medical team used every means at hand, including cardiopulmonary resuscitation and administering electrical shocks to get her heart started again and to stabilize her heart rhythm. The process was very difficult, and during the course of these attempts, the patient even had a second cardiac arrest. In the end, her coronary artery turned out to be blocked, and when the blockage was removed, her heart was still too weakened to circulate the blood. This caused her lungs to function less optimally, and so she had to be put on artificial ventilation. As soon as Dr. Belge had decided that the patient could be taken off the ven- ventilator, Naomi wanted to share an NDE with her. Naomi said, I saw everything. I saw it all. I saw my mom who died, I saw angels, saw you working on me, all the other doctors, me in the ER, 
in the ER, I was aware again, but this time it seemed different. I, I couldn't figure it out at first. And then I realized that I was up above my body watching everyone rush around. I saw them pumping up and down on my chest and putting a breathing tube in my mouth. I saw my closed eyes and how limp I was with one arm hanging off the bed. Then she described feeling herself no longer in the ER, but in a space that appeared to be an operating room. There was a large light overhead and different medical personnel that she had seen in the ER. After that, she experienced being in the intensive care unit. Bell wrote the following about the case. She described it to me and astonishingly even reminded me of something I had forgotten. She saw members of the resuscitation team try to tilt her whole body sideways to put a long flat board under her and me saying, whoa, 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 my stuff, as I grabbed the things I had set on top of the sterile field to prevent them from falling onto the floor. She couldn't understand the long plank, so I explained to her that it's called a backboard. It helps us do more effective chest compressions to circulate blood if there is a hard surface under the body as we press down, I went on to explain. Otherwise, your body would sink into the soft mattress and the pumping wouldn't be nearly as effective. She nodded that this made sense to her, but I remained amazed that she had been aware of that happening and saw me reacting to the shifting field by grabbing my supplies to keep them from falling off the bed when I knew for a fact that she was totally unconscious. Here's another case called The Scissors and the Needles. In a 2014 online review, Spanish physician Miguel Peritera Caseda of the um, uh, regional hospital in Malaga, Spain, talked about one of his patients who had had an OBE during an operation and who observed very specific elements such as various medical instruments. In his book, The Last Door, Dr. Peritera elaborated on this case. It involved a middle-aged woman, a heavy smoker who was extremely obese and who had serious bronchial symptoms. She had had trouble breathing for several days in a row in conjunction with infections in her airways. It was determined that there had been an obstruction or a narrowing of her upper respiratory tract that was impairing her breathing. She was in very bad shape, exhibiting tachycardia and profuse sweating. Her dire condition required her to be operated on right away or she might die. But despite how quickly the team tried to save her, she went into secondary respiratory failure and cardiac arrest. It took uh, Pertiera only a few seconds to open her trachea with a scalpel. He then requested a special type of forceps, uh, a trivalve tracheal dilator. This instrument looks like a pair of scissors from the back and like the long beak of a wading bird from the front but with three uh, beak-like prongs being visible instead of two. When the jaws open, they create an opening that enables introduction of the cannula uh, through which the patient will be able to breathe. The doctor succeeded in introducing the cannula to artificially ventilate the woman. The problem was not yet solved, though, because the patient's lung had meanwhile collapsed. The team, therefore, tried to reduce pressure on the chest. Pertiera and one of the anesthesiasts uh, stuck special needles into her chest cavity. The needles that are most suitable in such situations are orange needles, labeled number 14. 
Fortunately, the excess air indeed escaped from her chest the way air is let out of an air mattress. The patient was then kept sedated in order to optimize her recovery and to avoid her experiencing unnecessary pain, and then she was transferred to the intensive care unit. Once the patient had revived, she repeated over and over in what seemed like an obsessive delirium that she had seen all the members of the medical team as well as the light. Sometime later, Pertier went to see her, and while the patient shut off the ventilation hole with her finger from time to time so she could speak, she said as she exhaled, Doctor, I could see from outside. I could, I could see you. I need to talk to you. I've seen many things I must tell you about. However, not wanting to tire her, the doctor reassured her that they would talk in detail when she was better. Some days after that, there was a second conversation about her NDE. She told the doctor that during her experience, she was suddenly no longer lying on the operating table, but had found herself behind Peritiera. She said, I saw you stick out your arm and cut my neck from the top down with a scalpel. Then you asked for something. I, I don't remember exactly what you said. It was a number. They opened a little case and gave you a really strange pair of scissors that opened downward in three parts. You stuck the scissors into the hole you made in my neck, and you put a white plastic tube in there. After that, you hooked something up to me, a kind of rubber, like uh, electric tubing that electricity cables run through. Then something happened. I don't know what it was. I saw my body, and I heard all kinds of noises coming from the monitors. You were all talking and listening to my heart. After that, you all asked for something and poked a hu a huge needles into me that were orange where they were the widest. That hurt the most. It was strange. What you guys did after that seemed to be about somebody else, but I, I noted that it was being done to me, lying there, although I saw all of you from at least one meter away, something very strange. Finally, she felt as if she was rising up to a light, after which she awoke in the ICU. According to Pertier, her observations had no normal explanation. In an effort to find an explanation, he asked her whether she or even one of her family members might know something about the practice of medicine. This was not the case, however. What made the case so extraordinary in Pertier's mind was that the patient observed extremely specialized medical instruments that hardly anyone outside of the field would be familiar with. On top of that, she could not have heard anyone say the color of the needles because the color is not mentioned when somebody asks for one. Although it appears as if she experienced physical sensations during the acute moment of pain, that by itself still does not begin to explain how, in her condition, she could have seen correct images of unfamiliar medical instruments. Now here's one titled A Penny on the Cabinet. Linda L. Morris and Kathleen Knopf, both PhD-level nurses, interviewed 19 nurses about their experiences with patients who had been close to death or had had an NDE. The nurses reported all kinds of experiences, such as a visible glow around a patient shortly before the patient's death, perceptions of angels at the deathbed, and paranormal dreams about patients. One nurse told of a patient who had had an out-of-body experience during cardiac arrest. She said, So she, the patient, described the whole scene. And I say, Well, where were you? And she says, I was like flying above everyone else. 
So she described typical of what you would see if, if you're doing like uh, we do CPR on her. Now, I'm not there. I'm just describing what she's saying. And then she said something that was kind of funny. She said, there was a penny on top of one of the cabinets, but you'd have to climb up to see. And I happened to mention this to another nurse who talked about things like I do. And she actually looked up there and found it. All right. Here's one titled The Smoking Grannies. In 1994, 17-year-old Michaela of Homer City, Pennsylvania, was on vacation with her family. Unfortunately, she was the victim of a serious car accident caused by the driver of a large truck. She was flown to an ER by helicopter. She was not the only family member who was hurt, but her injuries were the gravest. She had suffered serious brain injury and wounds to her arms. The doctor who gave Michaela trauma treatment in the helicopter Scott Magley did his utmost to save her, but she still slipped into a coma on arrival at the hospital. In this condition, Michaela had an NDE with a panoramic view of her past, along with a peek into her future. Afterward, she found herself up in the corner of the hospital room where she looked down on her own body. Then Michaela saw her parents sitting in the hospital cafeteria with both her grandmothers sitting across from them. In a YouTube clip, she recounted, My dad is a smoker. He said he was going to have a cigarette because he just wanted to get some breathing room and get out of there. And it was funny because my grandmother, my mom's mom, who would never, has never and would never have a cigarette in her life, was like, oh, I need one too. I'm going to have one too. And then my other grandmother was like, yeah, me too. Two weeks later, Michaela awoke from her coma. She told her astonished mother that both her grandmothers had suddenly started smoking in the hospital cafeteria. And this event was explicitly confirmed by her mother in the same clip. Veridical experience. Okay. Here's one titled The Hair Clip. In 2012, intensive care nurse Baroness Andrea von Willemowski of Puking, Germany, reported to Pim von Lommel the following case from her nursing days. The following account is translated by uh, Wanda Boki from um, von Willemowski's own German language book. One day, a woman with a severe heart attack was admitted to our ward for resuscitation. Resuscitation efforts had already been attempted for a time en route to the hospital, but it didn't look like there was much of a chance of her surviving. She was already clinically dead. At first, we didn't really know whether we should continue resuscitation, but did it anyway. It became the most chaotic resuscitation I've ever witnessed. There were too many people, and they kept stepping on each other's feet and getting in each other's way. An IV bottle was swept off the table in the middle of this chaos and smashed to pieces. I was a newlywed at the time. My husband had cut a hair clip in the shape of a rose for me out of plywood. I was wearing the hair clip that particular day. 
The thing must somehow have slid out of my long hair and fallen on the floor. And once on the floor, it was broken when somebody stepped on it. I noticed it was missing. I was missing the hair clip once the resuscitation had been successfully accomplished. Our patient lived, but no one thought she would survive in the long term. She was still completely unconscious when I left for a three-week vacation after the shift. When I first returned to work after that vacation, I saw the patient again. Things were still not going well for her, but she was conscious, and, and now and then we were even able to talk with each other. At some certain point, out of the blue, she asked me, What happened to your pretty rose hair clip? I replied the hair clip, unfortunately, had been broken not too long ago. But something about that question perplexed me. There was something odd about it, but I always had a lot to do, so I didn't think about it anymore. My subconscious must have done so, though, because about three days later, as I was riding home on my motorcycle on a country road, it hit me. There was no way she could have seen that hair clip, was there? This was so disturbing to me that I had to slam on the brakes and come to a screeching halt. It was shocking. I almost couldn't stop thinking about it till my next shift started. And then I asked her right away how she knew about my clip. In response, she told me the following. During the resuscitation, she had an out-of-body experience in which she hovered in a corner of the room near the ceiling. She had gazed down on the whole scene from above, although she knew that she was actually lying down below and that we were working on her. But this didn't worry her one bit. One bit. She observed everything. She also saw who had stepped on my hair clip and was able to give me a description of the culprit. It was a doctor, and I didn't have a clue about any of this until that moment. <clears throat> she had also seen the glass bottle fall on the floor and smash to pieces. Her story made me speechless. Then she told me even more. In this most unusual situation, she had seen an extremely bright light and experienced an extraordinary sense of joy, a feeling she had never had before in her life until then. All her her questions had been instantly answered. She had felt utterly happy and at one with the world. And precisely at that moment, we had pulled her back into her pain-riddled body. She didn't thank us for that. Years later, I realized this patient had told me about a near-death experience in the middle of the 1980s in East Germany. Here's another one. It's called The Old Rancher. In his book, Parting Visions, pediatrician Melvin Morris included the case of a nurse's patient, an old rancher with a heart condition. The nurse had been educated in South Dakota. It was her first day in the ICU when the rancher suddenly had a heart attack and flatlined. The team grabbed a defibrillator and hooked it up as best they could. In their haste, and due to their lack of experience, the paddles were incorrectly placed, so the device did not operate well. Finally, the paddles were reversed so that they were able to restart the man's heart. Morris wrote, They later spoke to him and asked him about their efforts to help him. He smiled gently at them and told them that, in fact, they had nothing to do with his successful recovery. 
He told them that, in fact, Jesus was responsible for his return to life. And the proof, he said, is that your machine that you thought you shocked me with was unplugged the entire time. The students returned to the room and they that they had resuscitated him in and found, to their amazement, that the old rancher was absolutely correct. The machine was unplugged and clearly had been unplugged throughout their attempts to resuscitate him. All right. George Rodonea. In PMH Atwater's book, Beyond the Light, she documented the case of George Rodonea, a neuropathologist and political dissident in the former Soviet Union. Rodonea was run over by the KGB in 1976. His death was officially confirmed at the hospital, after which his corpse was placed in cold storage so that three days later they could, there could be an autopsy. In this situation, Rodinea left his body. First he saw only darkness, but, uh, but thought positive thoughts, through positive thoughts, rather, that darkness changed into a steadily more detailed vision of light, from a pinpoint of light, into eternally life-creating cells that moved in spirals in complete symmetry. He became one with light and felt intensely happy. When Rodinea thought of his body, he saw it lying in the morgue. He remembered everything that had happened. He was also able to see the thoughts and emotions of his wife, Nino, and of the people who had been involved in the accident. It was as if they had their thoughts inside of him, he said. He then wanted to find out the truth of those thoughts and emotions. By expressing a longing for greater knowledge, he was confronted by mental images of existence and thus became acquainted with thousands of years of history. When he returned to his body in the morgue, he was drawn to a nearby hospital where the wife of a friend had just had a baby. The newborn was constantly crying. He examined the baby, a girl, his eyes were like x-rays that could see right through the, little, through the little body. This ability enabled him to draw the conclusion that the baby had broken its hip during delivery. He spoke to her, Don't cry, nobody understands you. The baby was so astonished by his presence that she immediately stopped crying. According to Rodinea, children are able to see and hear transmaterial apparitions. The child reacted to him, he believes, because he was a physical reality to her. After three days, when the autopsy of Rodinea's body was just getting underway, he succeeded in opening his eyes. At first the doctors thought it was a reflex, but Rodinea appeared to have actually come back from the dead, even though his death and his frigid condition had both been confirmed. He was in poor condition physically, but after three days, the first words he spoke were about the baby that urgently needed help. X-rays of the baby confirmed that he was right. At one point, Atwater interviewed Rodinea's wife, Nino, who stated that during his NDE, Rodinea had actually witnessed what she had seen. According to Nino, he had actually had telepathic contact with her. In an email dated July 28, 2015, Atwater 
wrote Rivas the following about this aspect of the case. George told me that as part of his near-death experience, among the many things he could do was be able to enter the minds of all his friends and find out whether or not they were really friends. During this entry process, he also entered the mind of his wife, Nino. When he did, he both saw and heard his wife picking out his gravesite. As she stood there looking at the gravesite in her head, she pictured several men she would consider being her next husband. <laughs> she made a list for herself of their various qualities, pro and con, to decide which one would be the most suitable. After George revived and his tongue shrunk, shrunk back to its normal size so that he could talk, and that's, this took three days, George greeted his wife. He told her about the gravesite scenario. He described everything he saw there. Then he told her everything she thought about while she was there, the specific men she was considering to be her next husband, and the list she was making in her mind about the various pros and cons. He was correct in every detail. This so freaked her out that she refused to have much to do with him for a year. I had no sense that this was telepathic, but real, physically real, as if George's mind was physically inside his wife's mind. He saw what she saw. He also saw what she thought. When I met Nino and both children, I asked Nino if I could talk to her about that incident at the gravesite and her list of qualities of the men she was considering marrying. She described the incident for me, and all this was done in the privacy of her own mind. She only thought about the men and their various qualities. The list was her own. When her suddenly newly alive former dead husband talked about the personal moment at the gravesite, named the men she thought about, and then went on to read the list back to her so that to her that she made for each man, she was utterly shocked at his accuracy and how he could even do this. This shock was felt as if an affront against her right to privacy, the, the intimate privacy of her own mind had happened. I asked if it was true that she would have little or nothing to do with him for a year. She said, yes, it was true. She could not sleep in the same room with him. When I asked why, her answer was, I no longer had the privacy of my own mind. This was very hard to take. Nino also confirmed what happened at the hospital. The first words he said after his tongue swelled, swelling went down of his friend's wife having just given birth to a daughter. He told the doctors to get right up to the maternity ward and x-ray the baby's hip that had been broken by the attending nurse who had dropped the baby. George was a doctor himself, and he described the hip break in detail. The doctors rushed up to the maternity ward, had the baby x-rayed, and found the break exactly as described by George. Then they confronted the nurse with what they'd found, and she admitted to dropping the baby. She was immediately fired. And um, the editors go on, we could also have discussed this case in Chapter 3 because it appears likely that Rodinea experienced the telepathic perceptions during a cardiac arrest. Even though Atwater was not able to have the doctor confirm this specific point, we may accept, thanks to the statements of Rodinea's wife, Nino, that the case in this respect fits into Chapter 2 as well. Let's see if we have time for one more. Let's find a short one here. 
This is such a fascinating book. I, I think you will enjoy reading it. Let's see. Here's a short one. Ralph Duncan. In his book, Lessons from the Light, social psychologist and NDE researcher Kenneth Ring reported a case of miraculous healing. The case derived from Professor Emeritus Howard Mickles of the Religion Department of Wichita State University in Kansas. Mickle investigated this case thoroughly and stood staunchly behind its authenticity. In the 1980s, uh, no, in the 1970s, a leukemia patient named Ralph Duncan was dying. He had obviously been told that he had only a short time to live and had already prepared himself for his death. During his hospital admission, he had an NDE during which he met a being of light. Duncan took this being for Jesus, even though the being did not look like the traditional pictures of him. The being of light had eyes that were shooting fire, he said. Duncan and the being had telepathic contact with each other in the form of three brief sentences. That's enough. It's dead. It's gone. After he regained consciousness, these words were still echoing in his ears. He did not quite understand what what was meant by that's enough, but he associated its death with the disappearance of his leukemia. The last time uh, Ring had news of the man in 1989, he was still doing well. And that was almost 20 years after he had been diagnosed with a deadly leukemia. Well, the self does not die. Titus Rivas, Annie Durvin, and Rudolf Schmidt. Uh, I've just read a few sampling stories from this book, and I think you'll enjoy it. It provides evidence of the reality of near-death experience and out-of-body experiences. So I found, I hope you found this fascinating enough to go to the ins.org website and order a copy of The Self Does Not Die for Yourself. But unfortunately, we are out of time for today. If you'd like to listen again to this or any of our past shows, just go to our website at nderadio.org and tune in next Monday, 11 a.m. Eastern for more NDE Radio. This is Lee Whitting saying thanks for listening. <laughs>